Good evening. The United States pullout from Afghanistan continues. The Supreme Court says no to the CDC eviction ban. The arrest set a protest against a pipeline in Minnesota and a move to impeach the president. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Friday, August 27th, 2021. Governor Kathy Hochul said today talks are underway in Albany for a special session on the expiring moratorium on pandemic-related evictions. Hochul and top lawmakers in the state Senate and Assembly announced today they were discussing the next steps after the U.S. Supreme Court struck down a federal eviction moratorium. The New York moratorium, which is separate, survived a similar court ruling but expires next week. Hochul called the Supreme Court's ruling appalling and insensitive by eliminating a key line of defense for people who are struggling during the pandemic. White House press spokesperson Jen Psaki says while the moratorium is dead and congressional action unlikely. If there were enough votes to pass an eviction moratorium in Congress, it would have happened. It hasn't happened, right? So what we're looking at now is how to achieve the objective that we all share, which is to, not everyone, I should say, but a lot of the people who have calling for an extension on this, which is to keep people in their homes. There is means to do that in these states. Seven states have taken the steps. More states can take the steps. They have the funding they need. Jen Psaki earlier today, According to housing activists, only a fifth of eligible residents in New York state have applied for help paying their rent because most renters don't know that applying to the state's rent relief program will prevent their eviction. Estimates show that more than 800,000 renter households statewide, including half a million in New York City alone, are behind on their rent. Almost half of the renters are unemployed and three quarters earn less than $50,000 per year. The chief public policy officer of the Robin Hood Foundation is Jason Cohn. He says with the looming end of the moratorium, the rent crisis is becoming acute. These households are incredibly exposed to having to enter uh, eviction proceedings and then potentially lose their housing. How is this going to play out? It is quite complex. I mean, you have essentially um, a web of protections um, for uh, different you know, renters, depending on their situation, because of uh, a number of state actions that have um, been made, various legislation, certain aspects of the eviction moratorium. Um, so what that leaves us with is tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of households not being exactly sure where they stand on what they're protected from in terms of eviction. And so what we're calling on actually is the New York State Legislature to reconvene and pass legislation that would address the concerns of the Supreme Court and extend the time frame to allow people to apply for the state's emergency rental assistance program. If they apply, then they get more protections from eviction. But only about 160,000 households have applied for the program against those 800,000 or so that are behind on rent. What's causing all of this where we aren't getting the money to the people to pay the rent monies that's been allocated? Well, the state allocated about $2.2 billion to provide emergency rental assistance. But that program has run into a lot of administrative challenges. People have had difficult times applying, completing their applications. They also need require to have their landlords to certify as part of that process as well. Governor Hochul acknowledged the problems with it. She is working to address those problems with the state, but there's just not enough time to address all the administrative challenges that have come with that program ahead of when all these eviction protections are going to expire across the state. The Supreme Court said the legislature, the Congress has to vote on this if they want to extend it. Why can't 
Albany, the legislature in Albany, vote to extend the one in New York? They can absolutely adopt new legislation that would address the Supreme Court's rulings as it pertains to the New York State eviction moratorium. That's what they are, I believe, discussing now. It's something they have to do in earnest, pass that legislation to address those issues and just give more time, allow more time for people to apply for the rental assistance program, to know their rights. This is a sort of man-made crisis that we can stop. Um, And if we don't, it's going to drive tens of thousands of people further into poverty and away from economic opportunity. They had a lot of time to do this leading up to now. Why didn't they do it? There was a recognition that the state had allocated billions of dollars to help people. But it was only in the last two weeks that the legislature had hearings that really exposed the full extent of the challenges with the program and how difficult it has been for applicants to apply the barriers that people are facing. A lot of hope was put into that program getting off on a better start than it has. And then you have the complication of the Supreme Court's ruling both on the federal eviction moratorium, which has just came down in the last couple of days, and then earlier in the month on the 12th of August when they ruled on a provision of the New York State eviction moratoriums. Take that all together, and that's where we are, but it's a problem that can be solved. The legislature has the opportunity to do that with the governor's support to really stop what is a preventable crisis. You get this impression that there's people out there with more power than the rest of us who can decide these things and who are putting their finger on the scale against the democracy of the country, of the state. You know, our experience is that if someone's evicted, that is a life-altering event. Um, it makes people move into areas with higher crime, higher poverty, lower-performing schools, and less economic opportunity. That has a generational impact in terms of children that are affected in those households. We have all the instruments in front of us for the legislature and the governor to use to prevent that from happening. This is a win-win opportunity for them to exercise leadership to protect the most vulnerable in the state and allow the rental assistance program to cut the checks to those landlords that spent a year plus not receiving rent. We've got all the ingredients there to prevent this crisis, and we just need the leaders to step up in these next days. Jason Cohn is Chief Public Policy Officer of the Robin Hood Foundation. Meanwhile, the Treasury Department and Housing and Urban Development Secretary Marsha Fudge sent a letter today to all governors, mayors and county officials urging them to implement their own eviction bans. Congress has approved more than $46.5 billion in rental assistance, but so far state and local governments have distributed 11 percent of that money, just over $5 billion. And in more national news, Senator Robert F. Kennedy's assassin was granted parole today after two of RFK's sons spoke in favor of Sirhan Sirhan's release, and prosecutors declined to argue he should be kept behind bars. The decision was a major victory for the 77-year-old prisoner, though it does not assure his release. The governor will have 30 days to decide whether to grant it after a review. Douglas Kennedy, who was a toddler when his father was gunned down in 1968, said he was moved to tears by Sirhan's remorse and he should be released if he's not a threat to others. The New York senator and brother of President John F. Kennedy was a Democratic presidential candidate when he was gunned down June 6, 1968, in the Ambassador Hotel in Los Angeles, moments after delivering a victory speech in the pivotal California primary. Sirhan, who was convicted of first-degree murder, has said he doesn't remember the killing. And this morning, Minnesota state troopers removed demonstrators protesting Enbridge Energy's Line 3 pipeline project on the lawn of the Minnesota state capitol. (laughs) 
Cops surrounded about a thousand protesters who had gathered for a sacred ceremony while calling on Democratic Governor Tim Waltz and President Joe Biden to pull the permits and shut down the pipeline project. Indigenous and environmental activists who oppose the pipeline argue the project violates Native American treaty rights and will aggravate climate change and risk spills that would contaminate areas where indigenous people hunt fish and gather wild rice. 500 years of colonization for you to stand here and to disrespect it and to surround it with your violence. You, The least thing you could do is use those sticks and burn them. You could burn them and be part of the sacred fire and protect what actually matters. You have a choice every single day. You wake up and you make a choice every single day. I wake up and I make a choice to be authentically indigenous. And she was referring to these long, about three foot long sticks that police were carrying as they approached the demonstrators on the lawn in front of the state capitol earlier today. An indigenous woman says she's a water protector opposed to the pipeline that she says endangers water supplies along its path in indigenous territory and in violation of treaty rights. But she wasn't there to protest, but to hold a sacred ceremony for the water. We need supplies like water brought in, especially water, because we're going into a ceremony that's going to center around water now instead of the fire. If you can help, please bail out those that have been captured. Please send dry clothes, dry blankets, or supplies. When I say supplies, no firewood. I don't want them to see the firewood coming up here. They'll get nervous. Those of you who do ceremony, you know what the basics are we're looking for. Please help those that are captured. They don't, they're suffering in there. They're, they're held hostage. Uh, any other question? No. I love you all. You are also part of the Protector family. Reportedly, there are about 20 arrested. Line 3 starts in Alberta and clips a corner of North Dakota before crossing northern Minnesota en route to Enbridge's terminal in Superior, Wisconsin. The 337-mile segment in Minnesota is the last phase in replacing the former pipeline that was built in the 1960s. Construction began in December. And in more environmental activist news, United States District Court Judge Rebecca Goodgame Embinger sentenced Jessica Reznicek to eight years behind bars, $3,198,512.70 in restitution, and three years post-prison supervised release. The 39-year-old activist pleaded guilty to a single count of damaging an energy facility. In September 2019, Reznicek and 31-year-old Ruby Montoya were each indicted on nine federal charges, including damaging an energy facility, use of fire in the commission of a felony, and malicious use of fire. Each of the women face up to 110 years in prison. Montoya has yet to be sentenced. Reznicek, a nonviolent water protector, is currently in prison in southern Illinois. Salazar Montgomery is an environmental activist who spoke with WBAI earlier today. The majority of this pipeline was going through her home state, which is the state of Iowa, she went back to Iowa and she started to organize there. She started going to the public hearings and going to these different regulatory meetings and trying to get it stopped at that level. And she started an encampment in Keokuk, Iowa, where the pipeline was crossing underneath the Mississippi River. And she started an encampment there by herself and she blocked the road with some tires and her guitar. She got arrested and she called on the world to join her. And many people did in Iowa and came out to this ditch and joined her in resisting the pipeline there. She later went on and did a hunger strike at the Iowa Utilities Board, calling on them to revoke the permits for the Dakota Access Pipeline, which also failed. 
And then once she felt like she was running out of options and that the officials weren't listening, she went on her own direct action campaign. She disabled machinery in different parts of the Dakota Access Pipeline before it was operational and was eventually indicted for those actions by the federal government. What did that indictment lead to? There was nine charges. She was facing up to 120 years in prison for her nonviolent actions. She pled guilty to one count of conspiracy to damage the pipeline. That had a zero to 20 year sentencing range. Unfortunately, what happening at her sentencing that's the most alarming is that the judge agreed with the prosecution in applying this domestic terrorism enhancement, which over doubled her sentence. It added about five years to her sentence and she was sentenced to eight years in prison, in federal prison. So that she has to serve 85%, there's no parole. Yep. There is an appeal going forward to challenge the use of this enhancement, both in the the court and the Eighth Circuit Court, and also in the court of public opinion and a petition drive to call on Joe Biden and Congress to not just remove this enhancement in Jessica's case, but also really like critique and understand why this is being weaponized against someone like Jessica who committed nonviolent acts against private property but yet was not used against capital insurrectionists who, whose actions resulted in the death of police officers. And while we're not like advocating for the enhancement to remain in place or federal repression on anyone, it's very alarming that this is the priority that the Biden administration is taking in the use of this enhancement. Where is she being held right now? Southern Minnesota. Is that the final place where she's going to spend most of the time? Yep. That's where she's been assigned uh, by the Bureau of Prisons and where she is now. And it is a low security institute. So hopefully they let her stay there and they don't ever try to move her somewhere with a higher security. What is her feeling about the whole thing? Was it worth it? I don't really want to answer that question for her, but I know she is right now very focused on being a part of the the community in prison and is very appreciating of all the support she got and is continually alarmed about, yeah, the water situation and both in her home city and the world and the climate crisis. Catholic worker, pacifist organization, nonviolent taking out violence against property. Some people might agree, some people might disagree even within the movement. Yeah, I think this is an age old debate that will never stop happening. Whether people wanna call it violent or nonviolent, in Jessica's heart, she was acting from a place of nonviolence. She did not harm ever a human, an animal, or any plant or fauna life in her actions. Did her actions in any way delay the pipeline or impede its ability to start operating? We don't know exactly how long. I think Jessica estimated it was about three months. The restitution amount that the judge ordered Jessica to pay was $3.2 million. Really? How is she going to ever pay that? Jessica, being a part of the Catholic worker community, took a vow of poverty and hasn't had a job or work to enrich herself in over 11 years and has lived nothing but a life of volunteering and service. How old is she? 39. 
And that is Salazar Montgomery, an environmental activist. Massive protests in 2016 and 2017 against the Dakota Access Pipeline cited the project's threat to the Missouri and Mississippi rivers. Activists also targeted the effects on the global climate caused by fossil fuel emissions from shale oil transported by pipeline from Canada. The pipeline route runs just north of the Sandy Rock Sioux Tribes Reservation and crosses areas designated as treaty lands under the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. American forces working under heightened security and threats of another attack pressed ahead with the evacuation from Kabul's airport today after a deadly suicide bombing wrote a devastating closing chapter on the United States' withdrawal from its war in Afghanistan. The death toll rose to 169 Afghans, a number that could increase as authorities examined fragmented remains and 13 U.S. service members. The White House and the Pentagon warned there could be more bloodshed ahead of President Joe Biden's fast-approaching deadline Tuesday to end the airlift and withdraw American forces. Major General Hank Taylor of the Pentagon's Joint Staff said U.S. forces in the region were ready for any retaliatory action ordered. He said, we have options there right now. The general also modified yesterday's report on the bombing. He says a report of a second bomb at a nearby hotel was mistaken. We're not sure how that report was provided incorrectly, but we do know it's not any surprise that in the confusion of very dynamic events like this can cause information sometimes to be misreported or garbled. We felt it was important to correct the record with you all here. And that is the General Hank Taylor. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki said the next few days will be our most dangerous period to date in the evacuation. There's no rush to recognition of any sort by the United States or any international partners we have talked to. I am, as I've said in the past, blissfully not a spokesperson for the Taliban. So I would ask you to ask them that question as to what they want. That question comes after there have been repeated reports and comments by the White House press secretary and the president that the United States has been working very closely with the Taliban in order to try and organize the withdrawal from Kabul, Afghanistan. Saki added that the administration is focused on the immediate job at hand. Irony is far too light of a term. This is the circumstance we're faced with. The Taliban controlled large swaths of the country. That is not what anyone anticipated at this point in time. In order to get American citizens out, in order to get our Afghan partners out, in order to get green card holders out, we need to coordinate with the Taliban. We've been able to evacuate more than 105,000 people as a result. This is not the only place in the world where we work. We have to work with adversaries or people who have been enemies at times in order to further U.S. national security objectives. That's a part of what you have to be flexible to do when you're running the United States or when national security teams are looking to achieve our objectives around the world. I would say, having sat in a lot of these meetings, there's just not a lot of time for self-reflection right now. The focus is really on the task at hand. Meanwhile, Congressman Jeff Duncan, who represents South Carolina's third congressional district, is calling for President Joe Biden's impeachment over his handling of Afghanistan. Duncan co-sponsored Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene's articles of impeachment against the president. Duncan retweeted a Twitter post Friday morning from Greene's account that thanked him for co-sponsoring her bill and read, it's time for Congress to hold the administration accountable for Afghanistan. Saki had this to say. What is the White House's response to the articles of impeachment? Uh, yes, he does. And I have no response on a day where we're still honoring the lives of mil- men and women in the military who were lost yesterday. But Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy said after the withdrawal is complete, everything is on the table. Why would you negotiate with the Taliban? At no given time should we provide 
to our enemy, to a terrorist organization. These are American names we want to come into the airport. Why would the President of the United States go on television and tell all the Americans there it's safe to go to the airport? You said he shouldn't be negotiating with the Taliban. Trump did that, too, to be clear. So, I mean, was it wrong when Trump, he did Trump that? also had conditions, and he upheld the conditions. Trump never gave the names of Americans to the Taliban. Trump's never left Black Hawk helicopters more than Australia has. I don't think people are arguing about whether we should have left or not in Afghanistan. It's how. And I don't believe anybody in this country believes that this president has done it right. He has failed time and again. Thank you and God bless. Republican House Leader Kevin McCarthy. Hurricane Ida, meanwhile, is whipping western Cuba today, and the Category 1 storm is expected to slam the U.S. Gulf Coast as an even stronger cyclone Sunday, putting states from Louisiana to Florida on alert for fierce destruction. Ida is expected to hit the United States as a Category 4 hurricane with sustained winds of 140 miles per hour. According to the National Hurricane Center, Ida is expected to be an extremely dangerous major hurricane when it reaches the coast. Leaders in Louisiana and elsewhere issued mandatory or voluntary evacuation orders today in anticipation of major damage. Louisiana Governor John Bay Edwards asked the federal government to declare an emergency to free up recovery sources. Jen Psaki had this to say. We are sending a surge response team, 50 FEMA paramedics, who will be providing medical care statewide, 47 FEMA ambulances operated by 94 FEMA emergency medical service providers. will be supporting patient movement statewide to assist the state in decompressing hospital loads should that be needed. We have over 250 personnel across the state to respond to what could be a dangerous hurricane hitting the region over the course of the next day. And that was uh, Jen Psaki talking about uh, plans that the government has in uh, dealing with the approaching hurricane in the Gulf Coast region of the country. Last story, two cuts. I'm going to begin with Dr. Rochelle Walensky. She's the head of the Centers for Disease Control, and she was laying out the increasing rates of COVID in the United States. Yesterday, CDC reported nearly 165,000 new cases of COVID-19. Our seven-day average is at about 142,000 cases per day. This represents an increase of nearly 3% from the prior seven-day average. The seven-day average of hospital admissions is about 12,000 per day, an increase of about 6% from the previous seven-day period. And the seven-day average of daily deaths has also increased to 864 per day, an increase of nearly 11% from the previous seven-day period. Walensky went on to call on schools that are not following mask and vaccination guidance to do the right thing and implement COVID-19 precautions like masking to avoid outbreaks and protect children from the virus. I want to strongly appeal to those districts who have not implemented prevention strategies and encourage them to do the right thing to protect the children under their care. We know these multi-layered mitigation strategies work, and thanks to the American Rescue Plan, schools have the resources to implement these strategies. Universal masks in schools work to prevent outbreaks and reduce the risk of children bringing the virus home to others who are vulnerable. This is not forever. This is for now. Good ventilation reduces the number of virus particles in the air and helps prevent transmission. This is not only true for COVID-19, but for all other respiratory viruses that will inevitably circulate throughout the school year. We know what works. Now, let us unify together to follow these steps to ensure fundamentally that our children 
and our future are safe. Dr. Rochelle Walensky is director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. She says as studies have shown that these strategies help to thwart COVID-19 spread in schools, citing a a CDC study released today that found that case rates among children in schools with these protections were 3.4 times uh, lower. Case rates among children in schools with these protections were 3.4 times lower during the winter peak compared with rates in the community. And that's some of the news for Friday, August 27, 2021. The news is produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Thanks for listening. <laughs>